Well, good morning. Welcome to the services this morning. We appreciate your presence very much. There have been notes in order. We're going to be talking about this morning, uh, the uh, continue our talk on the uh, Ten Commandments. So we've talked through several of these this morning. The, uh, the topic is found in Exodus chapter 20 and verse number 14. It says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's basically all it says, at least there in Exodus chapter 20. But the Bible is full of a lot of information on this concept or this discussion about adultery. The word, uh, the word adultery, the definition there basically means that it is um, someone in a married covenant relationship having relations with someone else outside of that marriage covenant relationship. So a man and a wife are joined together in marriage, and if they, either one of them decide to have a relationship with another person outside of that uh, marriage covenant, that is adultery. In uh, Ezekiel, I believe it is, let me get my notes. Yeah, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse number 38, it gives us kind of a Bible definition of that uh, term. It says, in the King James Version at least, And I will judge thee as women that break wedlock and shed blood are judged. I will give thee blood and fury and jealousy. So that phrase, women that break wedlock, quote unquote, is the exact same Hebrew word that in Exodus chapter 20 is the word for adultery. So the Bible definition of adultery is breaking of wedlock. Or uh, you can obviously, it doesn't matter whether it's the man or the woman, but this concept of breaking the marriage vow by either the man or the woman is this uh, concept called adultery. So um, the second thing I would like to focus on or think about is, well, so he gives us this command in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 20. What, uh, what's the punishment for that? breaking of that command. Well, in Leviticus, it tells us. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse number 10, it says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament days, um, the Bible said that you put someone to death that committed adultery. That sounds like a pretty harsh punishment on the surface, especially in today's society where adultery and all kinds of things run rampant in our society. It's like, whoa, put them to death, which causes you to wonder, well, why such a harsh punishment? At least that's my first thoughts. Why would, why would the Lord say, hey, if you commit adultery, you know, you get put to death? We, we find in other passages that um, if you were caught in the very act, that was the punishment. That you, you know, you had to be caught in the very act. In fact, in the New Testament, they bring a woman to Jesus, right, that was caught in the very act of adultery. It tells us that in the, in the New Testament. Caught in the very act of adultery. And they talk about what, what should you do with her. And Jesus says, well, if you, those that are without sin cast the first stone. So it's obvious that the punishment for being caught in the very act of adultery was to be stoned to death, and that was indeed the case. 
But turn over with me to Numbers chapter 5, a rather lengthy reading, so if, you'll, uh, if you want to read along, I'll be reading out of the King James Version, that happens to be the Bible that I have. But Numbers chapter 5 talks to us about, well, what happens when you don't catch them in the very act? How do you, how do you figure that out? Let's see, Numbers chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. So Numbers chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside and commit a trespass against him, And a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept closed, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled... So what it's saying there is, if you think she's committed adultery, whether she has or she hasn't, this is, this is uh, what's, what we're going to do. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, starting verse number 14, and he be jealous of his wife and she be defiled. Okay, that's what it already read. Verse 15. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her the tenth part of an ephraim of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel. And the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, the priest shall take and put it into the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord and uncover the woman's head and put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is a jealousy offering. And the priest shall have in his hands the bitter water that causes the curse. And the priest shall charge her with an oath and say to the woman, If no man hath lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside to uncleanliness with another instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causes the curse." But if thou hast gone aside to another instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled, and some man hath lain with thee beside thine husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. And this water that causes a curse shall go into thy bowels and make thy belly swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And the priest shall write these curses in the book, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water. And he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter water that causes the curse. And the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. Then the priest shall take the jealousy offering out of the woman's hand and shall wave the offering before the Lord and offer it upon the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering, even the memorial thereof, and burn it upon the altar, and afterwards shall cause the woman to drink the water. And when he hath made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass that if she be defiled and hath done trespasses against her husband, that the water that causes the curse shall enter into her and become bitter, and her belly shall swell and her thighs shall rot, and the woman shall be accursed among the people, her people. 
And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, then shall then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. This is the law of jealousy when a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband and is defiled. Or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him and he be jealous over his wife and shall set the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. Then shall the man be guiltless from iniquity and this woman shall bear her iniquity. It's a long story there, but suffice to say if the husband thought the wife might have cheated on him. They went through this ritual um, with the priest, with the dust of the tabernacle and the water from the altar. And um, basically, there was a curse put on the woman if uh, she had gone aside and defiled herself with another man. So <clears throat> a, lot of, a lot of emphasis, a lot of discussion throughout the Bible on this concept of adultery so why do, we, why do we think, again, this, this harsh penalty? Why this penalty of death or this penalty of a curse on the woman that she would basically be cursed of her people if she committed adultery? Well, let's look at Genesis chapter 2. It's where it all begins. I think we've got to understand a little bit about marriage. And then once we understand a little bit about marriage, I think we might understand at least from my perspective, why I think it's important to God. So if we go over to Genesis chapter 2, we'll begin in verse number 18. And the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make, an, make, make a help meet for him. That means someone that's suitable to be with him. Which is a whole other sermon on women and women and men and men and suitable to be with him. We don't have time to get into that, but God set it up for a man and a woman to be suitable together. And out of the ground, the Lord, verse 19, and out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave name to all the cattle and all the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helpmeet for him. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is important. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. The word cleave there is a strong verb tense in the Hebrew. And that strong verb tense means that you're joined together. You're, you're held together. And it basically says here that two people, two people become one. Two people become one flesh. You're joined together. And it goes on to say that they were both naked and the man and his wife and were not ashamed to finish up that chapter there in Genesis chapter 2. So this concept of, of marriage is, is a very important one to God. From the very beginning of time, he said a man and a woman are going to leave their father and mother and they're going to become joined together, closely woven together, as we'll find out later in a covenant relationship. So look in Matthew chapter um, 19 because Jesus talks about these very verses over in Matthew chapter 19. 
But he gives us a little bit more insight into, again, why that was important. Matthew chapter 19, we'll start in verse 3 and we'll read through verse 9. Maybe, we might not get all the way through. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So again, remember that um, the marriage relationship by the time we get to the New Testament had gone through a lot of troubles. Marriages weren't like God wanted them to be back in Genesis chapter 2. Men were putting away their wives or divorcing their wives and setting them into society for a lot of different reasons. And when a woman in those days was divorced from a man and set into society, she didn't own anything. All the property, all the rights, everything was through the man of the house. And so she was basically left destitute on the street. And so these Pharisees are tempting Jesus, saying, Is it, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for just any reason? And Jesus answers in verse number 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them... At the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife. Again, that same verb, that same strong verb, verb, cleave to his wife, and they they twain shall be one flesh. Verse 6, a little bit more color to what we'd read earlier in Genesis. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. That was in Genesis. And then Jesus adds, What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So you see, our marriages, we think about marriage today, and I'm I'm talking about really secular outside, maybe this congregation outside in the world. We We think about marriage today as a contract, right? We go to the state or we go to the county or we go to the courthouse and we sign some documents that legally make us married here in the state of Texas or whatever, whatever state you happen to be in. And we think of it as a contract. I review contracts every day. Contracts are two things. Number one, they're timely, so there's a beginning and an ending. And number two, inside the contract, there are ways to break it. The very contract talks about breach of contract. How do you get out of it if you don't like it, right? And so we start thinking about marriage as this contract where we went down and signed on a piece of paper that, hey, if we don't like it, we can get out of it. We can go, in fact, today... And this is not new, but we have no-fault divorces. You can just go down to the courthouse and say, we just don't want to be married anymore. It's not anybody's fault. We just want to get this thing dissolved and go about our separate ways. But that's not... You see, marriage, it says here, very clearly, God joined you together. No man should put that asunder. And so when we start thinking about this concept of having relationships outside of our marriages, God joined the marriage together. You're breaking that joint, that union that he put together. And so that's why, potentially, one reason, that he would say, if you're going to do that, put both of the culprits to death. They're not, they're not paying attention to the to the sanctity of this union that I have built for them and put together for them. <clears throat> so marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. We find that in um, 
I'll, I'll just read this out of my notes. Malachi chapter 2 and verse number 14 says, For what reason? Because the Lord hath been witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So we talked about a contract a little bit, a contract beginning and ending, very, you know, wordy, you know, I've, that's why I wear glasses today. I mean, words that are so tiny you can barely read them on a sheet of page, two pack, back and forth, 30 pages long. All kinds of legalese. A covenant's not that way. A covenant has no ending. It's a permanent vow. In fact, the word covenant, and Michael's talked about this here in the, convert, in, the, in the congregation before, the word covenant means literally a cutting. And in the old days, the way they signified a covenant is they would cut an animal in half, spill its blood, and the two people that were coming into this covenant relationship would walk between the two halves of the animal through the blood, signifying that this was a union that they were committed to, and if they broke it, that whatever happened to that animal should happen to them. That they would literally be cut in half and their blood spilled. That's what covenant comes from. It's something that can't be broken without paying an ultimate penalty. In fact, when we take our vows, most of us vow to be faithful to our spouse until what? Death do us part. Not it gets tough. We run out of money. Somebody gets sick. Find somebody that looks better. It's, it's, not, what our, it's not what our vow is about. It's not what our covenant's about. It's about a lifelong union and joining together in a covenant relationship. So we're familiar, you may not realize it, but you're familiar with a, uh, a covenant in today's modern times. The Declaration of Independence is a covenant. Listen to the last sentence in the Declaration of Independence. And for the support of this declaration with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So these men that signed the Declaration of Independence came together as a group and pledged that they would stay together in fighting for the United States. And if they didn't, they, gave, they would give their life. It was a covenant that could only end, be ended by death according to what they signed. Now here's what Thomas Jefferson wrote after, after the signing. He said, we must all hang together or assuredly we will all hang separately. Basically saying, if we don't stay together as a group and the British come over here and start dividing us and we give up, we're all going to swing from the gallows independently if we don't hang together. So the concept of marriage is this covenant relationship. And the word, the word you, you, you think of a binding, so you think of that cleaving together and then just being bound together. I think of somebody, you know, a couple that's just got ropes around them from head to foot, bound together, cleaved together. They're joined together. They become one flesh. They're no longer two independent people. So when you think about all of that, is it really harsh that in the Old Testament as he set forth the shadows of things that were going to come, that the penalty would be death. I mean, the Lord, the Lord killed somebody for picking up sticks on the wrong day of the week. 
this sounds even more important than that to me. Regardless of what we think, it's a fair and a just judgment because our God is perfect in his thoughts. But that's at least one reason that I think that he chose to make the penalty of that death. So some of the characteristics of adultery. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 32, committing adultery destroyeth his soul. In Job chapter 24, adultery is done in secret after dark and is hidden. So it's one of those secret sins that we obviously try to keep hidden and ultimately destroys the soul. In Matthew chapter 5, we get another twist in the New Testament, as we did to most of the Old Testament commands that were carried forward into the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 27, it says, Ye have heard that it is said of them of old, Thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. The word lust there is defined as to set the heart upon, a longing for, or a desire. So in the New Testament, Jesus says that not only is having the physical relationship outside the marriage wrong, but even thinking about it, even looking at someone else and lusting after them. Now, Sheila and I people watch a lot. You know, we'll watch somebody walk by and we'll talk about Sometimes their clothing and or maybe lack of clothing um, in some cases. But we're not sitting there going, we would like to break our marriage covenant and be with that other person. That's not lust. That's just noticing people's clothes. But when you as a man look on another woman and think about, I would really like to be with her. I would like to sleep with her. That's lust. And for a woman to do the same thing, it's lust. And God says you've already mentally, spiritually broken your marriage vow if you're thinking about going out and doing that. And so the New Testament puts another twist on it that makes it even harder for us today. So we'll talk about a little bit more about that when we get to the, to the end of the, of the sermon. So we've been talking about physical adultery do you know there's a spiritual adultery? Yeah, there's a spiritual adultery. Hosea, the, the entire book of Hosea, if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea chapter 1 verse number 2 says, The beginning of the word of the Lord of, by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go take unto thee a wife of whoredom and children of whoredoms from the land that for the, from the land, for the land hath committed great Whoredom departing from the Lord. So Hosea, prophet of the Lord. A lot of commentaries, a lot of people are, are they're torn between this this opening there in Hosea as to whether he was literally supposed to go and marry a prostitute, or whether he was just being told to go marry any of the Israelite women because the entire country nation of Israel had fallen into adultery or whoredom in relationship to God because they had gone into other gods and idols and it doesn't really make any difference for the purpose of this story. Hosea goes and he marries this woman Gomer and for the first few years of their marriage it's full of love and everything's going okay. Hosea begins again to preach and to talk to these, these Israelites and he gets very focused on his ministry of trying to bring the children of Israel back to the Lord. 
Gomer's a little less interested in that, begins to do other things, and eventually runs in circles with other people and eventually commits adultery. She, uh, she goes and is with another man. As I understand the story, they move back and forth in and out of that relationship. She does it, he forgives her. She does it again, he forgives her. And finally, she finds the love of her life and she leaves Hosea and goes off uh, for a period of time with another man. Well, years go by. And uh, Hosea is sent word, and he finds out that um, Gomer's, the person that she was with, has abandoned her, has left her. And she is penniless, and she ultimately sells herself into slavery. So she begins to be a slave, where at least she can have a place to live and a place to eat. Sells herself into slavery, and Hosea finds out about it, and he goes and he purchases her back. And eventually she's reinstated as his wife. So the story ends in a good way. I don't know what those are called in literature, but they start off good. There's a tragedy in the middle and they end off good. I don't know, is that a dramatic tragedy? Anyway, there's probably words for that. And you think about that and you go, okay, I thought we were going to talk about spiritual adultery. Well, you see, the reason all of that happened, it was an exact mimic of what was going on with the children of Israel. That's why God told him to go and marry such a woman. He actually used the life of Hosea to lay aside the relationship that he had with the children of Israel. The children of Israel that he brought out of Egyptian bondage, that he had delivered, that he placed in the land of Canaan, that he had done all of this for, they had gone away from him. They had left the Lord. They'd gone away. And he loved them very much. And the story there is he will forgive you and, and bring you back if you will but come back. That's the beautiful story of Gomer. That's the beautiful story of God's relationship to his people. But it's also the story that, that talks about this concept of spiritual adultery. Jeremiah puts it this way in Jeremiah chapter 3. Israel commits adultery and Judah played the harlot. In chapter 3 and verse number 9, it said Israel had uh, committed adultery with stones and sticks. So it doesn't have to be another person. He's basically saying that they'd given themselves up to idolatry. They had worshipped anything but God. Stones and sticks, worthless things they'd given themselves up to. In in chapter 5 of Jeremiah, he says, How shall I pardon thee for this? In verse, in chapter 7, he says they've committed adultery, or will they commit adultery with Baal? He asks a question. In Jeremiah chapter 9, the Lord says that he wishes he could just go into a wilderness and, and Israel be removed from his sight because of how heavy his heart was for the spiritual adultery they were committing against him. Jeremiah 23 says the land is full of adulterers. and Jeremiah 23 also it says that the prophets were even committing adultery against him. In Ezekiel chapter 23 it says that, that they had given themselves up to idols in an adulterous form. 
Second Peter talks about false prophets and talks about those false prophets in this concept of that they'd given themselves up to this adulterous mindset and couldn't keep from committing sin. Well, what's that mean to all of us today? What, what, how do we put all that together? Well, obviously, physical adultery can't happen in our marriages. The command of Ezekiel chapter 20, or of Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 of thou shalt not commit adultery is ever bit as relevant to us today as it was to them 4,500 years ago or whenever it was given. It simply can't happen. Not only can it not physically happen, but we've got to keep our minds focused on our family and our spouses and not let them wonder to what ifs with other people. And we've got to get our spiritual life in the right frame of mind as well. We've got to have the relationship with God that we should have and not be turned away to idols of materialism or worldly things or all of the things that can get in front of us today. Colossians chapter 3 summarizes it for us. In Colossians chapter 3 it says, Seek the things that are above. It also says there to set your affections on things that are above. That's like verses uh, 2 and 3 of Colossians chapter 3. You say, well, how do you do that? Well, the beautiful thing about Colossians chapter 3, to me, it's one of the most practical chapters in the Bible. It talks about how to do that very thing. It talks about the things that we're to get away from and to put out of our lives. And one of those things is sexual immorality, which is adultery and all these other things we've been talking about. Put all that stuff out of your life. And then it tells you in a little bit later what all to put on. It says, take all those things, get them out, put all these good things on. It ends the chapter talking about the family. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. It tells us how to set our affections on things above, how to stay focused on the right things, and how to keep our minds out of the gutter. So you might read uh, Colossians chapter 3 today or this week and reflect on some of the things that it tells us to do there and the way it tells us to act and the things it tells us to focus on. And have a renewed commitment to your family, to your spouse, to your children, to your grandparents, to your parents, to everybody that's in your life. So hopefully the study has been beneficial to you somehow this morning. We've talked about the physical act of adultery. We've talked about the spiritual acts of adultery. And the fact that it's very, very important to God that we don't, that we don't enter into those relationships, those sins. So the church can help you this morning if you have a need, if you need to join the church, if you need to be baptized. We don't have water this morning, but we'll make arrangements. We'll get that done. If you need the prayers of the church, then uh, come as we sing the song that was selected.